You think you've got issues? Hi, I'm Dr. Laurie Appel. Welcome to my podcast, where we will be talking about a variety of mental health issues because, you know, we've all got issues. So in my last podcast, we explored the concept of personal growth and how our psychological baggage stalls or impedes this growth and how therapy is a place to unpack this baggage. On this podcast, I would like to talk a little bit more about some of the specific baggage that weighs us down and limits our growth, basically the work of therapy. So let's gather our suitcases and start unpacking. One of the things that weighs us down is having poor coping mechanisms. Coping mechanisms are self-preservation tactics that develop early in life. As we grow up and experience unpleasant events, we all develop coping mechanisms that serve to help us get through these events and to continue to push forward developmentally. These early coping mechanisms are often survival-based. For instance, we might have had to deny or avoid things in order to not be overwhelmed by our circumstances. We might have felt that we had to push boundaries and resist others in order to feel a sense of control over chaotic or suffocating circumstances. Or we might have developed a tendency to deflect and joke in order to not be overwhelmed by grief. All of these things were, in fact, adaptive at the time that we needed them. They helped us survive. However, as we grow, some of these coping mechanisms become more destructive than constructive. In intimate relationships, we can't continually deny or avoid dealing with difficult topics. We can't always rebel against people if we want to get along at work or in teams. We can't always joke away tragedy or grief. In therapy, we try to unpack our unique coping mechanisms by looking at the patterns in our lives and where we've gotten stuck. Through compassionate understanding of where certain coping mechanisms come from, We can develop insight and then decide from a rational and mature perspective what continues to serve us and what does not. I mean, perhaps finding humor in life's struggle is a good coping mechanism and serves us well. But maybe avoiding conflict has outgrown its usefulness because it interferes with developing intimate relationships. So we can either give up these things or maybe even just adjust the volume downward. Either way, when we let go of or tone down what no longer works for us, our energy is freed up to utilize more effective and mature coping mechanisms, the ones that still do serve us. Kind of like giving away an itchy sweater that no longer fits while holding on to a beloved coat that still protects us in the rain and the snow. So letting go of destructive coping mechanisms and developing effective ones is such an important aspect of therapy because... Life is fraught with challenges. And as renowned family therapist Virginia Satir says, life is not the way it's supposed to be. It's what it is. The way you cope with it is what makes the difference. And all too often, we are not very mindful of the way we cope. We just act in ways that make us feel better in the moment. However, these actions may not only hurt us, but the repeated use of these same actions that just feel good in the moment might serve to solidify them, kind of like making them our default strategies in times of stress. For example, in challenging times, we may withdraw from others, overeat or drink excessively, ruminate about worst-case scenarios, or deny and avoid problems that need to be dealt with. 
In therapy, the work is to identify these negative behaviors, work toward finding and testing out more positive ones, and making mindful choices about which to use. For example, maybe you could start using using exercise as a way to discharge some anger or anxiety. Or you could reach out to others and get support rather than withdrawing and feeling lonely. You might find ways in therapy to problem solve through planning and information gathering. Or rather than avoiding or denying something, you may learn to proactively troubleshoot potential problems rather than reacting to them later on. And this seems really simple, right? Just start behaving differently. Problem is, changing our behavior is really, really hard. Part of the reason for this is is that we tend to use more reflexive and emotional processes when reacting to circumstances. It's like, act first, think later. So in order to develop better coping strategies and not use our more reflexive default approach, we need to slow down a lot and think things through. This is the processing that takes place during therapy. In therapy, we talk through our thoughts and feelings and actions and are challenged to try new ways of thinking and new ways of behaving outside of therapy. Okay, so having poor coping mechanisms is one example of the baggage we need to sort through in therapy. Another set of luggage is poor insight and what I like to refer to as poor other sight. Now, I think that most of us understand the concept of insight and the ability to understand oneself. This understanding connects one's thoughts and feelings and behavior. This is the more obvious part of therapy, gaining insight. However, what is sometimes overlooked but must be addressed in therapy is what I'm going to call other sight, which is the capacity to understand the motivations, needs, and feelings of another person. Now, if we are missing the essential wardrobe piece of other sight, we are at a disadvantage in terms of our relationships with others. When we are dealing with others, we often make assumptions about the other person's motives or feelings based on our own experiences, defenses, and motivations. Then we react to these assumptions. For example, you might have had a history with a controlling parent, so you interpret your spouse's efforts to be organized, which in fact may be their coping mechanism for poor memory, as being controlling. So rather than empathizing or understanding where they're coming from, you react based on your assumptions about the roots of their behavior. Or maybe your kid is having a bad day, but you interpret his attitude as being a sign of disrespect to you, and a fight ensues. By developing other sight, we can build an awareness of what another person might be thinking and feeling and let go of our assumptions, which helps us to let go of anger. When we have this understanding, we are less inclined to react and more inclined to listen and understand, which enhances communication. Other sight sight is developed in therapy sessions by examining the assumptions that we have about another person's motivations. For instance, if I'm working with a parent who feels their teen disrespects them because they have a surly attitude, I might ask them to remember what it felt like to be a teen, dealing with the biological, social, and academic pressures they had. I might also ask them to imagine how their parent may have, may have reacted to their bad mood and how that made them feel. In this way, we can begin to dissect the situation and unravel the automatic assumptions that we make. Because once you get inside the head of someone else and connect your past experiences to your current situation, feelings of anger and frustration abate. In this way, other sight can also help you let go of the baggage of chronic resentment, anger, and blame. 
But let's talk a little bit more about the blame game. Another form of baggage we address in therapy is blaming others or the world for our circumstances. Therapy encourages looking inward and understanding how the choices that we make affect our lives. Theodore Roosevelt once said, if you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your troubles, you wouldn't sit for a month. Now, this is not about self-blame, but rather accountability. And accountability is really empowering. Why? Because if I had an active role in making the choices in my life that landed me here, then I have more power and control to make better and different choices in the future. Whether it's a job you're unhappy with but stuck in, or a marriage that's unfulfilling, or a relationship with your child in which you feel taken advantage of, there are reasons that have at least something to do with you, why you are in that unhappy situation. And if you are looking to blame another person or the world at large, then you are destined to remain stuck in helplessness. However, if you're able to look at your choices and your decisions, both good and bad, and own them, you are in a much better position to change them. No amount of complaining or self-pity can change another person or the world for that matter. But you can change your patterns of behavior and your choices, and these changes may in fact bring about changes in your relationships with others and changes in your life. And that's why accountability is empowering. It's the difference between being a victim of circumstance and having control over circumstance. For instance, no amount of venting about your thoughtless spouse will change that spouse. However, if you own that you have historically let them off the hook or that you have over the years just lowered your expectations, you can change that. You can learn to demand and expect more from your spouse. You can learn to speak up and voice your needs. You can stop compensating for your spouse. And in this very empowering way, you can gradually change and reshape your circumstance. But this whole accountability thing can be a very uncomfortable part of therapy and the point at which clients sometimes run away because really it's far easier to vent to a sympathetic friend than to have someone challenge you on your role on where you landed. Now, obviously, there are some circumstances around which we do have little control or we are or were, in fact, a victim. But even if we couldn't or can't control some circumstances, we can still work toward owning our future choices and even our outlook. As neurologist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl said, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. So keep in mind that it is your psychologist's responsibility to help you grow. And this may mean some periodic pushes for accountability and some challenges to let go of the baggage of blame. Another piece of baggage that people struggle with is emotional suppression, which is usually the result of our inability to accept our negative emotions. Dr. Susan David is a psychologist who works at Harvard Medical School studying the concept of emotional agility. She gave one of my favorite TED Talks where she defined emotional agility as the capacity to accept all of our emotions, even the messy, difficult ones, and to look at our emotions with curiosity and compassion. She proposes that defining emotions as good or bad is unrealistic. Life's beauty is intertwined with its tragedy. The only certain thing in life is that it will be fraught with uncertainties. She eloquently describes the contradictory rigidness we humans seem to have about emotions 
We either excessively brood about them, getting stuck in our own head, or we push them away. We assume that only certain emotions are okay. When we feel the not okay emotions or see others express them, we want to quickly suppress them or jump to a solution. The problem is when emotions are ignored or suppressed, they only get stronger. This is a psychological response called amplification. The reality is if you want to live your life fully, you will experience joy and success, but you will also necessarily experience disappointment, failure, heartache, and grief. As Dr. David says, and I love this, discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. Rather than suppressing or obsessing, we should be exploring our emotions. It shows us what we care about, what we value, what we feel strongly about. In therapy, we explore our emotions in a curious and non-judgmental way. Rather than suppressing, we question. Why am I feeling sad or angry or jealous right now? What do I need to change? Emotions are vital data. When we explore emotions in therapy, we build emotional agility and we can let go of the baggage of emotional suppression. Now, another kind of baggage that people carry is unrealistic expectations, both negative and positive. People are often defined as being either a pessimist, always expecting something negative, or an optimist, always expecting the best. But in fact, either extreme can result in negative consequences. Pessimism and chronic negative thinking has pretty disastrous consequences. It is related to feelings of depression, and it can all often lead to self-fulfilling prophecies. For example, if you go head off to a party with a sulky attitude because you are convinced and expecting to have a crappy time and be ignored, you know, you'll probably have a crappy time and people probably will ignore you. But not because of some preordained fact about you or about parties, but because you reek with negativity. Now, you might ask, so why is optimism not the ideal outlook? Well, that's because people who are overly optimistic may sweep harsher realities under the rug, only to be taken by surprise when negative things occur. Reality is, we are not entitled to a problem-free existence. I mean, some people can be shocked by the fact that their teen is argumentative or devastated that it rained on their vacation, as if this doesn't happen to everyone. Negative circumstances naturally occur in life, and we prepare ourselves for this reality by managing our expectations. We are defensively protecting ourselves against excessive disappointment. So managing expectations means to have a positive attitude while not expecting perfection. In fact, recent psychological research suggests that the best position to take is one of realistic opti optimism. And what does this look like? Well, you can head off to vacation happy and excited, but also expect that maybe rain might come or that you might have an argument with a loved one or that your kid may sometimes be crabby or sullen. So when one or more of these things happen, you're ready for it and not blown away by disappointment. Therapy can help align one's expectations and let go of the baggage of chronic negativity or unrealistic optimism and subsequent disappointment. Again, this may involve some uncomfortable confrontation by your psychologist about your unrealistic expectations. Now, the last piece of baggage that I want to talk about today, and certainly this podcast does not have an exhaustive list of the baggage that weighs us down, is that of complaint and inaction. 
Now, I know we all love to complain, grind about our spouses, our kids, our friends, our jobs, our parents, etc. And these complaint sessions actually have value. They allow us to vent and blow off steam. And they can also build relationships by finding common ground and sharing vulnerabilities. Problem with only complaining is, is that it provides no solution. It doesn't change anything. And it can also drive other people away if we're constantly complaining about the same things. And complaining may actually increase the amount of negative energy we have. Recent studies have shown that if people spend a lot of time venting frustrations and complaints on social media, it actually makes them more angry and aggressive. And there may be a neurological explanation for this. When we activate the part of our brain to complain, it can cause a firing in the area of the brain responsible for strong emotions like anger. If we keep firing it by endless complaining, we may fail to use other areas of our brain that focus on problem-solving or perspective-taking. Instead, we become mired in an endless cycle of firing the emotional, angry part of our brain and never stop to activate the more rational part of our brain. Now, we don't want to completely cut ourselves off from recognizing what's bugging us. It's just that complaining should be the start of the process, not the entirety of it. Complaining should be a signal that we have a problem that needs to be dealt with then we need to either make a plan to deal with it or find a way to put it in perspective and accept it. As Maya Angelou says, if you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. Don't complain. For example, we can complain about our job. That's fine. We all do. But the next step needs to be to either start looking for another job or to shift our attitude, perhaps being grateful that we have a job or that it's close to home or that it pays us a good salary. So it's funny. People all the time ask me how I can tolerate listening to people complain all day. And I tell them, I don't. A good therapist can listen and empathize, but then help the client to either find a solution or change their perspective. Constant complaining leads to bitterness, an awful piece of baggage to have. As I once wrote in a letter of advice to my son, don't be bitter. Life will be fraught with both little and big injustices toward you. Find ways to resolve the big ones and manage the small ones with grace. Everyone has his or her share of problems to deal with, so let the little stuff go. All right, so with that final bit of advice, that's a wrap-up of some of the baggage that weighs us down and that we address in therapy. Thank you so much for listening today, and I will see you next podcast. Dr. Laurie Appel is a licensed psychologist in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Her license and practice information is available on her website, lauriepelpsyd.com. All information provided on Dr. Laurie's podcast is solely for educational and informational purposes and is not meant to serve as psychological counseling. If you have personal issues you would like to explore, please contact a licensed mental health professional in your state.